there's a theological idea that I've been really, um, find myself meditating on a lot lately. I want to share it with you as we go and look at this passage from 1 Kings 3. And it's the idea um, that the most important thing that God wants for us, ultimately, is harmonious relationships between us, uh, human beings, and himself. Harmonious relationships between us and each other. Between groups of people and groups of people. Between us and the creation. Um, animate objects and inanimate objects. Um, and as Christians, we stand in this point in history in, on November the 8th, 2015. And because we've got the Bible, we can look back in time to Eden, um, you know, the Genesis creation account, and we can see before the fall, before Adam and Eve sinned, um, we can see harmony at that point between um, people and God and people and each other and people and creation. Um, but then after the sin of humanity, the sin of ignoring God's good order, the breakdown of that order and the effects of God's general judgment over, over the world, we see a cursed world and the order breaking up. So murder and violence and sickness and sadness and war and injustice and immorality and unfaithfulness, unbelief and death. But we're still standing here on November the 8th, 2015. We can then look back again in time using the Bible to God's giving of the law. And we can see um, uh, God's saying to Israel here, here's a way for you to pursue that order again. And the law, it looks back as well to that time of Eden, but it also looks forward to the coming of Messiah. Um, who will one day fulfil this law. And it even looks even further to the end of time. Um, the law of Moses is a way of bringing this harmony back between people and all of these things around us. Then we look to the arrival of Jesus, who fulfils the law in every way, but he preaches about the kingdom of God. So the message has got this, this um, rich dynamic to it. And wherever he goes, he advocates for this harmony, this restoration of God's perfect order. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus heals the sick, raises the dead. Um, he brings order to, the, to, the, to the, phys the physical order. He calms the storm. He befriends the marginalised brings social order. He shows respect and attention to women and affirms the covenant of marriage and brings harmony between the sexes. He shows love to the poor and brings economic harmony. He dies and rises and provides spiritual harmony between people and God. Jesus is the Logos, the Word, the Son of God, the one through whom all things are created. And here he is, the divine composer. That's why I like to think of him putting in this harmony in the universe wherever he goes. So we looked, we looked at Eden, we see harmony. We looked at the giving of the law, we see um, you know, God trying to introduce harmony back. We see Jesus bringing harmony. And then we can also look forward in time, because we've got the Bible in the book of Revelation, and we can see the ultimate harmony, the ultimate symphony. And it's interesting that um, John, the writer of Revelation, who had the vision, he not only paints this picture of harmony, but you see literal harmony. So you see 
you know, um, angels numbering thousands upon tens of thousands singing a new song. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. And, and John says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and under the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I mean, this is harmony in the creation, in the people, literal singing harmony, but spiritual harmony between people, God, the creation. More glorious than any harmony you've heard before. This is the end of the Bible's story of salvation, God's salvation for us. And this is where we're headed. It's not just a lack of conflict. It's not just a lack of pain, but it's harmony that is infinitely beautiful and joyful. Now, understanding this plot line, this is why I've kind of been really finding myself thinking about it a lot. It helps us to understand our role, uh, our, our purpose in life as Christians uh, and how we're to live now and what Jesus is saying. We're not meant to bring division. We're not meant to bring pain and suffering. We're meant to bring harmony in its all its forms, and that's what God wants us to do. That's what God gives us the task to do. Now, I begin with this thought on harmony because when we look at King Solomon, the third king of Israel, when he started off, he clearly understood his place as king to lead Israel in such a way, in a godly way, um, that Israel would be right with God and with each other. He wasn't perfect when he started out. I mean, the passage we, we read, it, it indicates a few weird things that shows how imperfect he still is. You know, he's worshipping Yahweh in the high places, it says, and that was a no-no. It's a high places where the pagan worship was done and there were like little mounds all over the place, um, in valleys, sometimes up on mountains, sometimes like little shrines. And God didn't approve of this. Nevertheless, we see in this passage, there's a real definite good start we have with this king because of his priorities, which is what we'll see. Solomon's desire is to build a temple for God. And we know from what we looked at last week, uh, the, from 2 Samuel 7 about King David, that God promises to David that his son would do this. So Solomon lays out his pattern for what kind of king he's going to be, and he's right on target. God says to him in a dream, ask for you whatever you want. And Solomon's answer to this question reveals what's in his heart. Now, if he's a king of the normal garden variety, this is what he's probably going to say. If he's a king of the normal garden variety, he's going to say, make me famous, make me rich, um, make me powerful, make me defeat all my enemies, and give me a long life, thanks very much. Um, but at this point, King Solomon's heart is at a really good place, and so he asks for something unexpected. See, in Deuteronomy 17, way back earlier in Israel's history, it talks about what makes a godly king, and it says, this is Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, he must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. And Solomon has believed this teaching. He will be a king under God's law. He's not going to be a king that seeks after his own fame. He'll be a king that pursues God's fame, God's good order. He'll be a king that cultivates God's harmony for the people. 
he's going to be God's servant. And you see this word appears four times in ver- between verses 6 to 9. Servant, servant king, servant king. He's going to be loyal to the, the covenant relationship God has with, with Israel. And his goal is the welfare of God's people in verses 8 and 9, not his own glory. It's not about Solomon, it's about God. That's a good start for King Solomon. And his desire is for character. He could have said anything. God's revealed himself to him true. You could ask for anything. A great shiny palace, a thousand chariots. But he asks for godly character. He wants a discerning heart, or it can be translated also as a listening heart. Heart that listens to God. And the next part of chapter 3 is really famous, you might have heard of it, is the famous anecdote of, of Solomon um, deciding whose baby the two prostitutes, you know, there's these two women and they claim their baby is theirs and he, can, he determines how to decide. You should read about it. It just shows this discerning heart that God gives him. In order to govern the people, the servant king needs the talent for which Solomon asks. He needs to be faithful, righteous, discerning, wise. Isaiah 11 says, verse 2, he needs the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So these are the qualities that Solomon asks for. And God says, perfect, of course, I want to give these to you. I will give you wisdom. In fact, you're going to be the wisest person in all of the land. Nobody else is as wise as you. And since you haven't asked for self-glory, I will actually give you glory. It's amazing. I will actually make you wealthy. You haven't asked for this, but I'm going to do it. I will make you famous. You'll be the greatest king in the land. But there is one disclaimer that God makes. One conditional blessing. And we must not overlook it. Because in fact, it goes to the key... It goes to the heart of the story of the kings of Israel, this conditional promise. Verse 14, And if, if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So long life is going to depend on continued faithfulness to God. Long life will be, be, continued, uh, will be continued by God as long as he's faithful. All the other things are unconditional, but that one thing is conditional. Now, in this story of King Solomon, um, the writer of 1 Kings is, is attempting a balancing act because on the one hand you have, you know, we know because we've read 2 Samuel 7, God's promise to David that his descent, there will be a dynasty that will never end of kings after him. A dynasty that will never end. But then we also have this conditional promise. Um, so how, how, can these, how can these two things work together? The dynastic promise is unconditional, but the particular throne of Israel and the long life are conditional on obedience from this king. I, I was thinking about how does this work for you and me? Because... How much, for example, does our salvation depend on God's promise to give us salvation by his grace? And how much does it depend on our faithfulness, our remaining a Christian, 
our living obedient, obediently. One of the favourite Bible study questions that people like to ask, um, you know, there's all those ones that people always ask about predestination and demon worshippers and it always comes up at late at night in Bible study. And one of the questions is, once you are saved, are you always saved? Or can you actually fall out of your salvation? People love to ask that question. And this is a good question to ask. It's a good question to ask. And we see lots of people come and go at church in our lifetime as Christians. We see family members drop off the Christian perch. Some of my friends who I've been brothers and sisters in the gospel, to use a Bible phrase, you know, they're not Christians anymore. People that I've even done like evangelism and mission with um, and stood next to, not even Christians anymore. And so it does, you know, it makes me think, you know, is our salvation dependent on something that we do? And it's easy to get tied in a knot with this question. You know, understanding of God's conditional and unconditional um, language in the Bible about how he relates to us. And in the history of the church, this has caused a lot of division. Um, there's been some really famous theologians along the way who've argued publicly about this. So, for example, in the history of the church, uh, Augustine and Pelagius. You've probably not read much Augustine and Pelagius in your own personal reading time. Mia probably has because she's just in an early church history exam. She had to for the marks. But... Um, you know, uh, for example, this British-born theologian Pelagius in the late 300s, early 400s. Um, I won't tell you all the details, but he opposed this idea of predestination and he really pushed human free will. And um, he really sort of argued this case that people can achieve righteousness, perfect righteousness, without the help of God. And then Augustine, um, the Bishop of Hippo, one of my favourite theologians, he came along and said, said no, Pelagius is wrong. Um, he's denying the need for God in performing good works. So he was some of the most important theologians in history already, you know, in early days, arguing over God's role and our role in our lives as Christians. Calvin, Calvin and Arminius did the same thing a thousand years later. What do you think? How much does your salvation depend on God's promises? And how much does it depend on your faithful obedience? And I think this passage does offer one possible way for us to understand this. See, God's critically important promise, first made to David, to create an eternal dynasty, it actually rests on God's unconditional grace. And this was founded on King David's faithfulness, his act of obedience. Look at verse 14 again. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David, your father, did, I will give you a long life. And for us, our critically important salvation rests on God's unconditional grace too. And this is founded on Jesus' past act of obedience. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners... So also, through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Romans 5.19. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 5.8-9. Some, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. So God's promise to provide salvation is unconditional 
to all those who by God's grace have faith in Jesus Christ. We can be comforted in this. This is comfort for the Christian. Uh, That's an unconditional promise that if you have faith in Jesus Christ, that he's Lord and Saviour, faith in his death and resurrection, that you will be saved. If you've really given your life to Jesus, then your forgiveness, your justification, your right standing before God is secure. But see, Jesus also offers conditional promises too. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 25-34, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, using modern language, you spend a lot of time worrying about your life. You worry about your finances, where you will live, your fitness, your good looks, your clothes, your sex appeal. Yet I tell you the truth, not even King Solomon in all his glory was dressed as beautifully as the birds of the air. So stop panicking about making your life look like a celebrity. The pagans run after these things, but God knows your needs. And here's the conditional promise. So seek first the kingdom of God, and if you do this, as the condition, all these things will be added to you as well. And this is the secret. This is how we, the disciples of Jesus, plug into the plot line of the Bible to realise the harmony of the relationships that God wants for us. Harmony between God and us. Harmony between us and each other. Harmony between us and the creation. We spend so much time secure in our salvation, but distracted by other things apart from the kingdom of God. We seek status in our career. We seek after a perfect social life. We seek after worldly blessings. We seek after a high-paying job. So no wonder we get ourselves into trouble. One thing you could do in your personal devotional life when you're reading the Bible and praying is you could sit down and write down your list of priorities, be honest with yourself, and it's really hard to do, and write, you know, what are my priorities? What am I spending most of my time doing? What's my thought life focusing on? And see what comes up the top. Does the kingdom of God and seeking after Jesus come up at the top? Augustine says the problem with, with, with us is that our, our heart has a, has a list of loves and it's all jumbled up the wrong way and it needs to be put back in the right order with God at the top. Anything else at the top becomes our idol. Let me remind you of the reading we had at the start of the service from Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven... It's like treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. This is how hungry we should be. Invest your everything into your pursuit of God's kingdom. Don't just give your last 1%, the last bit of your time in the week, but give your whole to Jesus. Don't make your life a diversified portfolio, but put all your eggs in a basket. That's mixing two metaphors. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> if you're a Christian who has been coming to church for a long time and you believe in Jesus, then your faith, your, your salvation is secure and you can be assured in that and you can be comforted in that. But you might also be feeling really ho-hum about your faith. You might also be thinking, nothing much is happening. I don't see too much excitement in my faith and I just don't know what the point of my faith is at the moment. Perhaps you're not seeking first after the kingdom of God. 
seek it first. Not second, not third, not fourth. And then all these things. Wisdom, joy, peace, faithfulness. And according to Jesus, even material things will be added to you as well. If you're worried about your faith, trust, believe, put it first, seek it first and see what happens. Perhaps all this time you've been secure in your salvation but been seeking the kingdom 10th or 11th. Seeking your own kingdom and not God's kingdom. In this passage we see King Solomon seeking first God's kingdom, not Solomon's kingdom. His life is in harmony with God. His choices are in harmony with God's choices. He's seeking God's kingdom and all these other things are being added. Solomon received God's gift of virtuosic, godly wisdom. And he became so famous for it that people came from all around to hear him speak. As Jesus himself said, even the Queen of the South came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now someone greater than Solomon is here. Let's pray. May we be a church that seeks first the kingdom of God. Thank you that our salvation is secure if we have faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, but we pray that also we can trust in what you've said to us to do, to seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to us as well. Amen.